If you are able, let's honor the reading. I love that noise. I love that noise. It sounds so good. It feels so good in here this morning. Let's honor the reading of God's word to us. Smile. <laughs> God's word to us through uh, one of our key texts this morning. We're going to find it in Hebrews 12, uh, starting in verse 2. So I'll read it. You can just follow along um, silently. It says, we look away from the natural realm and we focus our attention and our expectation onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Father God, we just say this morning, thank you. Thank you for your yes on the cross. God, we celebrate your life. We celebrate your resurrection this morning. It fills us with hope. It fills us with, with joy. And God, um, no matter how we came into this room this morning, I, I pray that we'll leave filled with hope and filled with joy, filled with life. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. So I'm excited this morning to talk about the journey of Passion Week, which kind of culminates on, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So in, in the story, just a week out from Jesus' death and resurrection, they were celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a borrowed colt. And to see all the people, you know, lining the streets and they were throwing their, their cloaks down before him and, and, and taking palm branches and putting them down as he rode into town as the triumphant king. And so when I think about that, I am reminded how it can be so easy for me to have a been there and done that attitude. The word, the word awesome is, is funny because I, if you just take just a minute this morning, I want you to think about the last five times that you've used that word awesome. And then think about if what you were describing actually was awesome. Like, you know, for instance, for me, you know, I remember the first time when Taco Bell and Doritos came together, you know, and I said to myself, Dorito tacos, this is awesome. <laughs> and, and everyone knows, you know, the, the one or two people that you follow on Instagram that does CrossFit at 3.30 a.m. every morning, like Jim, who's running the track, right? <laughs> and they, they, they always post their full workout so that you'll know. And what do they say? I did this and this and this, and I lifted 4,000 pounds, and it was awesome, <laughs> right? You know, not, not really, that, to me that sounds terrible because you know what I was doing at 3.30 in the morning? I was fast asleep in my bed and that was awesome. Um, some of you, when you wake up, you have a cup of coffee and you say to yourself, because you're not ready to talk to anybody else before that cup of coffee, this is awesome. Um, you have a meal and you say, this is tremendous, this is awesome. And so it's just become such a familiar word to us that actually what's happened is the weight of that word has been diminished by how often we use it. And we've kind of lost sight of what truly is awesome. So there's times that go by when Good Friday can just easily become just another Friday. How many of you were here Good Friday evening, by the way? I've got to give a shout out to our youth. Elevate Student Ministry, amazing. 
I was uh, watching it as I was coming back from uh, a trip, and so um, I didn't get to be here on site, but um, I, just all the feedback and, and getting to, to you know, kind of watch and more, more so listen as I was driving back into town. You guys are amazing. So, but, you know, there are times that go by when Good Friday can just as easily become another Friday or when Passion Week becomes just a little bit better version of the week before. And so what I've been praying all week for me and for you, for us, is that God would illuminate his resurrection for us and just kind of throw cold water in our face that he would sound the alarm and say, there has to be something in us as believers, as followers of Jesus, where when we talk about Jesus' sacrifice for us and his resurrection, that it unlocks kind of a different compartment in our brain and in our heart than when we have a great meal. You know what I mean? And so this is the prayer for all of us today. God, wipe the slate clean, scrape off the calluses of familiarity, and, and let me see you afresh today, so much so that it stops me in my tracks and makes me go, wow, all over again. And my prayer is that for all of us this weekend that we would arrive there. So C.S. Lewis, he was um, famously quoted as saying, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And so if we're in this room and we're following Jesus, and this week is the essence of our faith, and this day it should take up utmost importance in our hearts. And as we jump in today, we're going to be looking in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, and we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, earlier in this chapter, Jesus is sitting at the Lord's table and he, he, he kind of institutes the Lord's Supper. And then it says they sing a hymn and they head out. It's late at night. And then they, they go on their way to Gethsemane, um, which is the garden outside of, town, of the town of Jerusalem. And the, and the way it would work is people often... They, they wouldn't have their gardens in the city. They would have them outside of the city. And so we don't know who owns this garden, um, it, but it's the one that Jesus would go to time and time again to be refreshed. It's a nameless hero in the story of God. But scripture says Jesus would often go to this place and pray. And his disciples were familiar with it. So they, they, they would have left the meal late at night um, people differ on, on, on what time they think it would have been, but most people agree that it would have been between 9 and 12 o'clock at night. So it's late at night, going into early in the morning, and when they arrive uh, to this garden, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And so he already knows who it is. He already knows that that's coming. And as he walks into the garden, the very next day is the day where he'll give up his life for the sins of the world. And so this is the context of where we find ourselves when Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, starting in verse 36. And I'm gonna read it for us. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like or in your scripture. It says, then Jesus led his disciples to an orchard called the Olive Press. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them, sit here while I go and pray nearby. He took Peter and Jacob and John with him and however, an intense feeling of great sorrow plunged his soul into agony. And he said to them, my heart is overwhelmed and crushed with grief. It feels as though I'm dying. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then he walked a short distance away and overcome with grief, 
he threw himself face down on the ground and prayed, my father, is there any way that you can deliver me from this suffering? Please take it from me. Yet what I want is not important for I only desire to fulfill your plan for me. Then an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen him. Later, he came back to his three disciples and found them all sound asleep. He awakened Peter and he said to them, could you not stay awake with me for even an hour? Probably not what you want written about you in the eternal word of God, right? He continues and says, keep alert and pray that you'll be spared from, the time, from this time of testing. Your spirit is eager enough, but your humanity is weak. Then he left them for a second time to pray in solitude. And he said, uh, he said to God, my father, if there is not a way that you can deliver me from this suffering, then your will must be done. He came back to the disciples and he found them sound asleep for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he left them and went away to pray the same prayer for the third time. When he returned again to his disciples, he awoke them saying, are you still sleeping? Don't you know that the hour has come for the son of man to be handed over to the authority of sinful men? Get up and let's go for the betrayer has arrived. So there's just a few things contextually that I think is important for us to know. One, John tells us in his account of this in John 18 that Judas knew where this garden was. So Jesus walks into this garden knowing that he is about to be betrayed, right? Knowing that his life is coming to an end. He's already predicted it three times in Matthew's gospel when we read it there. And his, so his time on our planet earth is coming to an end. And as he gets into the garden, it says that he goes away multiple times to pray. And so I think the first thing I, I just want us all to, to grab on, on, onto is this idea that prayer has to be our first reaction and not our last resort. Prayer has to be our first option and not our last resort. It's interesting, in, in Luke's account of this, he says in the 39th verse of chapter 22 that Jesus left the upper room with his disciples and as was his habit, he went to the Mount of Olives, his place of secret prayer. So you read that all throughout the gospels that Jesus would constantly break away from the crowds and he would constantly remove himself from the business of life to sit with his father. And so I just wonder this morning, just before we start, you know, in our, in our anxiety stricken culture, you know, how many of us day by day, how many of us can look at our schedule, at our calendar and go, man, that's my time. I've got a place. I've got a time. I've got a plan where I'm going to sit with my father and I'm just going to be with him because he loves me and I love him. And I'm going to get away from my phone and I'm going to get away from all the people who are pulling and nagging at me all day long. And I'm going to go sit with my father. It says that this was Jesus' custom. It was his habit. He would do this over and over and over again. If he needed to take a step and go and be away by himself to sit with the father, who are we to think we can manage, you know, all the stuff that we try to hold on to, the stress and the, and the tension in our life by ourselves. And so as he gets to this moment and he's speaking with his disciples, he says, sit here while I go over there and pray. First thing, the, the greatest trial in my life is around the corner from me. And the thing that I need to do most right now is pray. That's what I'm gonna go do. Do you think that, you know, maybe we could learn from that just in the, and that's this morning. In our culture, we have a saying, and you've heard it before. We, and we will say, after we have tried everything that we can to try to fix a problem, we'll try to do it ourselves or try to do it our own way. And we, we, you'll, you'll eventually hear some people say this, the only thing that there is to do now is to what? Pray. 
that is dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I have tried to do everything that I could possibly do in my own power. I've invited my friends in. I, I, you know, we've all tried to do what you know, we can do, and we're not sure if it's going to work. So I guess since we've tried everything else, maybe we should go before a holy God and ask him if there's anything that he can do about this. Doesn't, doesn't that sound like our culture, though? We, we get so caught up in trying to fix things that we forget that we already know the maker. And, and so I, I think what Jesus is saying is when you're presented with your greatest trial, you do one of two things. You will fight or you will fall on your face. And it says of Jesus, the second time he goes away to pray in Matthew's account, that he threw himself face down on the ground and prayed. So what is it about prayer? It's interesting what, what Jesus says to the disciples when he brings them there. Some of the translations say, I want you to keep watch. Now, what was he watching for? I, I, I used to think that they were watching for the guards, you know, because Jesus knew that Judas was, was gonna lead the guards up there. But, but then I thought if he, if he knew that they were coming, surely he would have just went to a different garden. I mean, if, if I'm not... I'm just guessing that Jesus had a lot of connections, you know? And so he probably had other options of gardens that he could use. So think about it. If, if Jesus knew that Judas knew where they were, surely if he was concerned about that, he would have just gone somewhere else. And so I don't think that Jesus was saying, keep watch solely for the purpose of, you know, somebody coming for them. So what was it? it it's fascinating to me that the, the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them in light of the scriptures, anyhow, that we can see is to pray. All throughout the accounts of the gospel, the only time the disciples ever come to him and say, hey, you know, when you do this one thing, it seems like it's different than, than whatever anybody else does this one thing. So we'd like for you to teach us this one thing. <laughs> Will you teach us to pray? And I wonder if Jesus is going back before the father and then coming back to his disciples and says, watch. And, and he says, your spirit is eager enough, but your humanity is weak. Some translations more, maybe more familiar to us, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And I wonder if he's saying, what I want you to watch is, I want you to watch me. I want you to watch what I do in my time of greatest trial. I want you to watch my reaction to the chaos. So watch as I go and pray, because like I told you earlier, guess what? In this world, you will have trouble. You will. It's coming. And when it does, you'll have one of two reactions. You will fight, which will lead you to stress and ultimately no solution, or it will lead you to fall on your face before a holy God who's the only one actually who can do anything about the situation that you're in. And I wonder, as, G, if, as Jesus is going away to pray, he says, watch. If he's saying, hey, I want you to know this, that the way that you're not gonna fall is by prioritizing prayer. If Jesus had to prioritize prayer, and what theologians, they've, they've called it the last temptation of Christ, of Jesus, if Jesus in that moment had to prioritize prayer, then how can we think that we can stand in the face of temptation, our own two feet and our own strength and our own power? We have to prioritize prayer. Lord, help us to make it our first priority and not our last. So the other thing that's interesting about this text is we see Jesus in a way that we don't see him a lot throughout the rest of scripture. 
um, there's descriptive words used about him that we aren't familiar with so much, especially when you hear him um, you know, talking about Jesus, when the scriptures talk about Jesus, so that when you read it, it almost makes you scratch your head and go, you know, wait, what is this? Why is, he, why is Jesus reacting like this? Why was Jesus so overwhelmed to the point of death? You don't see that anywhere else in Scripture. This, sound, this doesn't sound like Jesus. Jesus is our champion, right? Jesus isn't afraid of anything. Jesus doesn't shrink back. This doesn't seem like him. But you see just a few things in this text that make you go, hmm, I wonder what's you know, happening here. And so he says, my heart is overwhelmed and crushed with grief. It feels as though I'm dying. So what caused that? What causes that? What, what was it that made Jesus troubled and distressed, overwhelmed and crushed. When you put the two words together in the original Greek language, when you couple them together like that, it's even stronger. And an English word that we could kind of liken it to this morning would be horrified. What could possibly make Jesus horrified? What could possibly cause him in this moment to have that Reaction. What was happening? Why is this different than everything, everywhere else that we read about him? I mean, sure, he, he wept when Lazarus died. And we see that. And as he's grieving the loss of his friend, who, spoiler alert, he ends up raising from the dead. But we don't see him like that very often. I used to think that when it says here two times, my father, if there's any way that you can deliver me from this suffering, uh, please take it from me. Yet what I want is not important for I only desire to, to fulfill your plan for me. And then he goes back three times and he says, hey, if the only way is for me to drink this cup, if that's the only option, then I want your will and not mine. But if there's another option, that's what I want. So you go, what in the world was in that cup? What is in the cup? What, what made Jesus horrified? What caused him such great anguish that in Luke's account, it says that he was in such intense agony of spirit that his sweat became drops of blood dripping onto the ground. In medical terms, it's called hematohydrosis when your capillaries burst under great pressure and the blood and the sweat mix together and it falls down your face. What could have caused that kind of angst? What was in the cup? Well, all throughout scripture, the word cup is used. So the idea is found, um, I'm gonna list several here. Isaiah 51, the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath again. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, it says that it's the cup of God's fury against sin. So Jesus is in the garden and he's gonna pray and he knows what's coming in the next few hours. Within 24 hours, he's gonna be on the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows that not too long from now, Judas and all the soldiers are, are gonna be coming up the hill to arrest him. He knows all of that. And for a long time, I, I thought that all of that is what caused him to tremble. All, you know, all, all these people are coming for me. This is the end. That's what caused that horrifying feeling in him that was the, the physical abuse that he, he knew that he was about to endure. And I, and I don't wanna take away from that because it was extraordinary. But Jesus, three times in this gospel, has already said exactly what's going to happen. He says, this is exactly the way I'm going to die. So surely Jesus isn't afraid. Surely Jesus, he's not nervous. Surely Jesus is not intimidated by the, the physical 
ramifications of the cross, although they are greater than anything you and I will ever experience. We, we have read stories of Christian martyrs, though, who have, have died similar deaths physically, and yet they sang their way to their death. And so here's Jesus, and you go, what was it? What did you see in that cup? What made you react like this? And I think it's this. Death has two dimensions, physical and spiritual, right? And the consequences of our sin is that Isaiah says our iniquities or our falling short have separated us from God. It has pulled us apart from God. And Jesus knew the only way to accomplish the rescue plan for us was for him to become sin. The only way that I can pay for it is to become it. And in that moment, he's looking into this cup and, and what he sees in the cup is every wrong that you've ever done, ever done and, and I've ever done, every decision we wish we could take back, every sin that's ever been committed on planet Earth is in that cup. And when he looks at it, what's gonna happen to him for the first time in all of humanity is I'm gonna be separated from my father. I've never been separated from my father, ever. And I'm looking at this cup and I'm saying to him, Father, Abba, Father, it says in, in one of the tellings, the most relational term that we have for connecting with God. Dad, if there is another way inside of your sovereign plan, if there is another way for me to accomplish the same thing without drinking this cup, then I wanna take that path. For the first time, when Jesus prays that prayer, this is the response. Silence. So he goes again, if, if there's any other way, I'm on board with the plan, but if there's any other way that we can accomplish this plan inside of your sovereignty, Father, if there's another option, another angle that we could take, I wanna take that path. But if it's not what I want, I want. It's what you want. And again, there's, there's this gentle silence. New Testament scholars will say, different theologians will say, they speculate at this moment in the garden, God had begun to turn his head away. And the blood that was required to pay for your sin and mine had already started to flow, not on the hill of Calvary, but in the garden of Gethsemane. What was in the cup was separation from his father. And yet nobody took Jesus' life on the cross. Roman soldiers didn't take Jesus' life on the cross. Nobody at Calvary took anything from Jesus. He stared into that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well the consequences, both physically, which are unimaginable, but also spiritually for the first time in, in all of history, my father and I are gonna be separated. And he had a decision to make. Jesus looked into that cup on his road to the cross. And the author of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And it makes you wonder, what could possibly set before him in a moment like this that could possibly cause the emotion of what is being described as horror to be turned into the emotion of joy? What could possibly, what could have you possibly seen that made him sign off on this plan? I, I think he saw two things. 
His, his goal was total obedience to the Father, and that's why he said repeatedly, not what I want, but what you want. And then secondly, when he looked into the cup and he saw the separation from his Father, he understood that without him drinking that cup, that separation would be our eternal destiny. So there's no other way to repair the separation from a holy God other than for the Son of God to drink the cup. And so he's in the garden. Can you imagine what he's feeling? Sweat like drops of blood coming down his face. My soul is heavy, so much so that I think I might die. And he has a decision to make. And you know what it is? It's a yes or a no. It's an on or off. It's a one or a zero to the plan of God. Praying and is what he's been doing in the garden, paying the consequences and enduring the physical ramifications and the spiritual ones, or no, to taking, uh, saying, to, I'm gonna take my own desires and saying, I'd like to go another way. And in that moment, Jesus looked into the cup and he saw you. And he saw me. And wanting to be obedient to the Father, he said the ultimate yes. I got to visit the Garden of Gethsemane firsthand on a trip to Israel in the summer of, of uh, 2007. Uh, it's 14 years ago now. And the International Foursquare Convention um, was held there that year, so I saved up my travel budget and uh, went for the 14-day trip with four-square pastors and leaders from all over the world. It was unforgettable. And um, I video-blogged the whole experience long before that was a cool thing to do. And um, there's even an infamous video, I'm sure some of you have seen it, of me doing the Superman float and rubbing the Dead Sea mud on my belly um, that somehow has 55,000 views. <laughs> but I, I mean, the whole experience was, was life-changing. I mean, walking the Via Della Rosa and visiting the garden tomb and, and so many other sites where Jesus and Paul and, and Peter walked. But out of all the places that we went, the most impacting for me is when we got to the garden. We walked the steps that Jesus would have taken down to the garden and I was overwhelmed for the rest of the trip from the emotions that I experienced on that day. And so here's what I wrote. I, I looked it up, J July 24th, 2007. I, I was sharing about the Mount of Olives um, and our visit there, and, th and then I wrote this. It was here that Jesus gave a major address to the disciples. He spent the night before his arrest in the gardens of Gethsemane where Judas brought the guards to arrest him betraying him the next morning. The gardens overwhelmed me. And when we went inside the chapel where the rock Jesus was said to pray sat, I literally fell to my knees and the tears came immediately. To try and describe the moment would be futile. It was simply God's presence meeting me in a very powerful way, in a way that I really still can't put to words adequately to this day. And so, in a strange way, it's almost like just, just, just a, a fraction, just a tiny 
iota of the weight that Jesus felt in that garden, just kind of, you kind of felt that in the room. And I've been emotional every time I talk about that experience since then. I can't help but just start welling up when I think about that moment where the ultimate yes was said on our behalf. The last thing I want for us to consider from this text is this. Jesus says over and over and over again, not my will, but yours. Jesus voluntarily went. Theologian Jonathan Edwards, he asked the question, why would God open for Jesus the horrors of the cross like this here in Gethsemane? Why would, we, why would he show him you know, how bad it was gonna be when, 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 when there still would be time for him to go another way? And then Edwards answers his own question and he says it was so that we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us would be put on display even more. So as Jesus is going to pray, he says, not my will, but yours. Your trust in God. If you want an easy way to measure it. Your trust in God is measured by what you do at the intersection of your wants and his desires and his plans for our life. And everybody in this room knows that intersection. Well, what do you do when you start down a path, right? And, and you start feeling good about things and I'm feeling good about this job or I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about this relationship and all my desires are pushing me this way. All my wants are pushing me this way, but then all of a sudden I'm aware of the fact that I'm under the authority of God and his desires and his decrees and his commands are ultimately gonna crash together with mine. And so in that moment, one must bow and it will not be God, he loves you too much. And so what do you do when your desire comes in conflict with his and you see Jesus and you see his heart and you see his mission and you see his passion and you see his purpose, Jesus says in that, moment, not what I want, but what you want. I want it another way, if there is another way, but it's not about what I want, it's about what you want. So obedience, being drawn in, and being led by his love, by his love, is the goal. Being drawn in by the loving Father. And it's so easy for us in 2021 to run around and do all of the churchy things. But at the end of the day, what God hopes for us is loving obedience. John chapter 14, three times in nine verses, he says some version of this. If you love me, you will do what I'm asking you to do. And it is so easy for me, I don't know about you, it is so easy for me to make other things the goal like, like somehow I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to heaven because I've got all my, you know, ticket stubs from my attendance at church um, or from all the things that I've done or that I've, I've been to. And I can say, look, I did that on this Sunday. I did great on this Sunday. I did that on this Sunday. I did great on that Sunday. And that's awesome. I have, I have high hopes for, for everyone to come and worship God together in a gathering like this every Sunday. But at the end of the day, church attendance is nothing compared to listening and responding to the voice of our Father. God wants you to encounter him. And when you do, it's either a yes or a no. And one of us in the equation must fold to our desires. And I am begging 
everyone in the house, that we would be people who, when we come into that moment, that we would be the ones who would bow. We will be the ones who will submit to the sovereign plan of God because we know that you know all things and you see the end from the beginning and what I want probably is gonna change three weeks from now. (laughs) So I'm gonna bow and I'm gonna say yes to you. We're gonna get ready to pray in just a minute and Bob, you can come up and, and prepare. But, but let's wrap this up this morning. The, the story of scripture and our story really is, is summarized in two gardens. In Genesis chapter three, you read about the Garden of Eden. You read about sin coming into the world and you read about Adam and Eve choosing their way over God's way. And you see the anthem in the Garden of Eden was this, not your way, God, but mine. I want my way. God, I, I, I know you think you know what you're doing, but I'm looking for another way and I want that way. And the consequences of that is that we were fractured and we were separated and we were pulled away from a holy God. And in that moment was the moment that we chose our own way. And in that moment, there was a penalty of sin that had to be paid. And there was only one way for reconciliation to happen. And so heaven launched a rescue mission to planet earth by Father God, God Almighty, the creator of all things, the Father sending his one and only son to planet earth. And 33 years later, we read about another garden. And in this garden, the anthem was different. The anthem was not your way. It was not, not your way, but mine. The anthem was not my way, but yours. I will say yes to this cup. The cup that we deserve, the cup that is filled with our sin and our iniquities. I will say yes to that cup, knowing full well what it will cost me, knowing what the next 24 hours will look like. I say Yes. The Garden of Gethsemane means literally translated the oil press. It's where the crushing of olives would happen. And I just think about the words that Isaiah writes in chapter 53. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. How many of us need some healing today? How many of us need some rescue from our own choices? That our own yeses and noes have put us in some precarious places. And by his loving and resounding yes in the garden, we can come to him boldly this morning because it's his kindness and it's his compassion and it's his never-ending love that draws us to him. My prayer for all of us today is that awe would be reawakened in us. That when we ponder the sacrifice that Jesus willingly made, he voluntarily made on our behalf that we would just fall down. The way that we would use the word awesome would really reflect the meaning of the word. Jesus was my only shot. 
He was your only shot. And he said, yes. And the one thing left on our tab is gratitude. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're ready to say yes to Jesus because he's already put a big yes on the table for you. And if you choose to say yes this morning, let me tell you, you will feel a hope rise up in you. Can he fill you with hope, somebody? Yes, he can. Can he heal you this morning? Yes, he can. Can he give you a new life this morning? Yes, he can. Can he be your rescue this morning? Yes, he can. Can he give you a miracle this morning? Amen. I want to pray for you and pray for everyone that's watching right now. Let's do that. Lord, I pray for every person that's heard the sound of my voice this morning. And I know that you've been speaking directly to us. That's what you do. God, we love to hear your voice. And there's some that feel their life hanging in the balance between a yes and a no, and they're considering what you've come to offer them. Your big and final yes is on the table. Hope. And there's some this morning that are saying, but Father, there's something there that feels a little bit risky. It feels like a leap to give someone my life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give them the confidence to offer their whole faith and their whole yes and their whole trust on the table this morning. Not that they would just believe, but Father, that they're ready to follow after you. So Lord, move in every life by your spirit like only you can. Amen. So if you're watching and if you're listening this morning in person or online, as you're listening and as you're thinking about, you know I, know, I know I need a new relationship with God. Maybe you've never had one. Maybe it's time to resurrender this morning. When we talk about putting your yes on the table, you're just saying, I'm in. You know, just tell me how. If that's you this morning um, and you're ready, let's, let's move forward this morning. Maybe you've given your life to him before. But, you know, th- this world has a way. We all know it of of getting between us and God and you felt separated. Well, this morning you've heard the story of the one who came to breach the gap. Can I just tell you, and and please hear me this morning. Please hear me. This is a word from God to you. He is not mad at you. He loves you. So we are celebrating a Resurrection Sunday this morning because before the foundations of the world, before you, know, you were formed in your mother's womb, while you were still caught up in sin, Jesus died for you. And he knew that you were gonna make the mistakes that you made. <laughs> he knew and he loved you so much that he still said yes to the cross. He still said yes to pay that price for you. But on the third day, he rose again so that you and I can still hold on to and have hope this morning that all the loss and the suffering of this world doesn't have to sting like it does for those who do not have hope. If you would say this morning, Sean, I need to give my life to Jesus or I need to resurrender my life. I need to come back to him this morning. He's not, let me say this. He's not after just a belief. He's not after any kind of religious commitment or churchy to-do list or churchy to-do-not list. (laughs) Um, He just wants you to say 
yes to a loving relationship with him. That's it. And I'm gonna ask everyone that's listening this morning, we're all gonna pray out loud this morning, okay? All of us, even if you're, just, even if you're watching from home, we're gonna pray together just as a show of support for everyone in this room, for all who are ready to make this faith commitment this morning. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes and agree with me? And before we pray, if that's you this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just raise your hand this morning just to let me know? I'm the only one that's looking. We wanna agree with you this morning. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, you can put them down. There's no magic in what we're about to pray. It's just our way of giving you words to help you say yes, okay? But everybody, say this after me this morning. Jesus, I thank you for the price that you have paid for me. I receive the hope that you offer. Your ultimate yes that you put on the table. I ask you to forgive me for leaning into my will and not yours. Come and change me. Make me the person that you want me to be. Today, Lord, I give you my heart, everything. It is yours, amen and amen. Can we celebrate this morning? Father, I just thank you right now for every single person who prayed that prayer, whether it's the first time or they resurrendered their life. Um, it's what this house is all about. It's all about you putting our yes, um, giving our yes back to you where you've already put it on the table, back to you. Thank you, Father, all for your renown and all for your glory. Let that hope rise up in every single one of us right now. Thank you, Jesus, for your yes. Amen and amen. Come on, let's just celebrate just one more time. It's a good day. It is a good day.